Alrighty, week three, we're looking at a series on kind of loosely evangelism and hospitality. One of our core values at Grace Fellowship is to be promoting a culture of evangelism and hospitality, which means it's more than just trying to come up with newfangled programs to try to do stuff that we're supposed to be doing just ourselves anyways. But how do we be promoting a culture and right ways of thinking and um, producing in our lives this sort of outreaching spirit, this welcoming spirit, this uh, gospel-sharing spirit? And so we looked at public evangelism the first week, how really the church and the proclaimed word is God's central method for proclaiming the gospel. Uh, We looked last week at private evangelism, how we want to be people who participate in really good gospel dialogues conversing, really knowing one another, sharing back and forth, and speaking the truth. And this week we're looking at the concept of witness, which is really a concept where we are speaking without speaking. Uh, Our lives and our actions and our attitudes and character is testifying of God just as our words can. So if you think of that, even the concept literally of a witness in court, uh, or someone giving testimony in court, uh, they're being asked questions, And they're giving answers to the truth of what they've experienced. And that's sort of that concept last week, that private evangelism, that we should expect people to ask us and us to answer. But then there's that sense also in which our lives are always speaking, our lives are always testifying to what we value. Our lives and the way we shape and mold our actions, it betrays the things that lie closest to our heart. Um, You can see someone's Um, Values especially by the things they do and the things they don't do. And so if you even think of in these last couple weeks, right, having the Olympics. And Olympic athletes, they're notably marked by this pursuit of the gold medal. And their lives make it really clear for everyone who interacts with them in daily life what they're valuing and pursuing. They are strict with their diet. Um, With their time out, they're not necessarily going out when all their friends are going out. They're waking up early. They're going to the ice rink. They're practicing. They're being very careful that their sleep is protected. They're being careful that their time is managed appropriately. And they're positively pursuing training and practicing and competing. All these things make it clear that they're refraining from some things others are doing. They're doing things others are doing all because they're pursuing something they perceive to be of high value. And this is what we want our witness to be, that by the things we do and the things we don't do, we are speaking, our lives are speaking to the world that our highest value is Christ, that he is that treasure in the field that's worth giving everything to buy. He's that pearl of great price that's of inestimable value. And as Um, Or that our lives are testifying, as Paul says in Philippians 3, that everything in this world that was once gained to me, we now count as loss for Christ. Indeed, everything is counted as rubbish that we might gain Christ and be found in him because he's the one of surpassing worth. So as we look at this concept of witness, let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that When you rescue us, you don't just leave us as we are, but you send your spirit to transform our hearts and minds, that we might be, as is our destiny, to be conformed to the image of Christ, your beloved Son. Lord, we ask that you will impress your word on our mind and hearts, and that we will have increasing conviction today to pursue a life of holiness and helpfulness for the glory of Christ's name in this world. And we ask it, knowing you hear us for his sake. Amen. Oh, man. So a theme 
verse that kind of gives us this backdrop of the things we do and the things we don't do is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're told, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So first off, how ought we to consider ourselves in a secularized culture? We're sojourners. This isn't our homeland. We're here um, for a time, perhaps to go back to our home. We're exiles. We're not where we ought to be. Our true home is heaven. That's where Philippians 3 says our citizenship is, and that's where we're waiting. So we're sojourners and exiles, and we're called here to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, so there's things we're going to be refraining from as Christians, namely the fleshly passions that war against the soul. We're engaged constantly in that battle of flesh and spirit. We feel the flesh rising up. We feel the fight. The spirit wants things. The flesh wants things. But we're to abstain from those flesh, be people who walk by the spirit, and don't fulfill the deeds of the body. We're refraining. But secondly, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, many think that that idea of glorifying God on the day of his visitation refers to the salvation of these onlookers. And it's interesting that even if they, in a sense, think these people are evildoers, they don't participate in their cultural programs, they don't worship the cultural idols, yet the good deeds speak for themselves. They might hate what they believe, they might think that they're going against society, but their good deeds speak well. Or similarly, in James 1, uh, we, we looked at this as we've been going through James. He gives us this similar bifold response of the things we, we refrain from and the things we engage in. He says, pure religion that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Okay, that's a positive good. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we want to balance in here. Some, um, per, perhaps if you grew up you, like me in a slightly more legalistic environment at times, All our witnesses is just the refraining part. Often the more progressive church, they only focus on the positive mercy part. But these two things, refraining and engaging, um, are two things we're constantly holding on to as Christians. So let's look at these twin witnesses. First, let's consider the witness of holiness. The witness of holiness. Uh, Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 with me. We're told, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Isn't it interesting? It says they should be surprised when you don't go along with them in their revelries and all these things that they're participating in. And in here, we have two, um, two big elements of a surprisingly Christian way of life. And that is a Christian that is living in sexual integrity and with a temperate sobriety. These two things witness to holiness before the world. Because what are two of the great vices that pull people into life of harm and um, difficulty? It is these two things of intoxication and fornication. And don't they often go together? The one often leads to the other. And though there's many vices in this world, not everyone is in a position to be pursuing wealth and power. 
but basically everyone can spend a few bucks to get drunk, find a way to sleep around, and these fleshly indulgences uh, have a lot of power in this world. And to refrain from these things is surprising to people. Um, to, to keep yourself until you're married and only know one spouse in intimacy, that is shocking today. It's a hookup culture. And this sort of testimony speaks at the very least of something different, something that maybe it's not attractive, but it at least seems surprising. It's odd. Perhaps there's a curiosity provoked. Christians want to not indulge the flesh. And to do this not in a um, self-righteous sounding way, if you're being invited out to do this or that, like, oh, no, I don't do those sorts of things. But to be able to present it as that positive good of, I know what I want and what I believe is good for me and God's best, and I'm pursuing a life that I think is good and healthy and full of life and vigor. And similarly here, we also want to be careful that if we're ready to condemn these sins in the world, that we're not um, harboring sins in private, right? Whether people um, drinking on their own, yet condemning public drunkenness. Um, Drinking not in moderation, that is. Um, Or, you know, condemning the sexual sins of the society, but indulging in your own mind or on your own tablet or computer or phone in such similar sins. We want our internal witness and our external witness to match. These are things that we should care about. Now, let's move on to Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. We're really just looking at a bunch of texts today, a bunch of texts that call us to the sort of life we're to live in this world. And I would say, if you're looking for what's the preeminent passage of how Christians ought to conduct themselves in the world, Ephesians 4 is the best place to look. We did a really slow dive down this uh, with young adults recently. And just like each one of these has so much in it. And really, Paul, in a way, he unpacks most of the um, second half of the Ten Commandments in this passage. So he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay? We can't walk the same way as the world. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Right? That's the hook in this world, is that the desires of the flesh we have for these passions, they're deceitful. They deceive us by letting us think that this is the way to the good life, but they actually corrupt us. They're deceitful desires. And we're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, we're putting on a new way of life in this world. And what does it look like? Paul gives us now a quick rundown, following the Ten Commandments, of what this Christian witness before this world looks like. Verse 25, scrolling down. Angel. Um, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Harkening to the ninth commandment here, the way we use our words to speak truth, the way we keep our promises, uh, do what we say we're going to do. It's very common to break your promises in this world, but to be one who, as uh, Psalm 17 says, swears to his own hurt and changes not. 
I will keep my word even if there's a negative consequence for me because we want to be people of integrity. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Here, this is hearkening to the sixth commandment, that we should love life and be peaceable and gentle people. And when we can have a witness in this world of meekness, of composure, of poise and and repose, that speaks volumes. Or as that uh, old poem says, if you can keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. That's a wonderful witness. Uh, Verse 28, "Let, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is speaking of the Eighth Commandment, how we use our wealth and property and possessions. And notice here that that ideal of being self-supporting, moving from being a taker to being a giver. Someone that's not taking from others, but moving beyond just sustaining their own needs to where they can actually have an abundance to share and to provide for others who are in need. And so, as Christians, we want to have a sharingness witness We want to be known as sharers, not hoarders. And I know it's a high value in our culture here to be frugal and to save and to plan for the future. But we can never, if, if we get a reputation for stinginess, that's bad. We want to have a reputation for generosity and sharingness. Um, Even growing up in my own life, I remember when I was younger, I really got a bad stinginess reputation. I would never give, and I thought I was so smart because I was saving up for college, and I was um, being very careful with my money. But I realized that I was just as attached to money as people that were wasteful with it. The money had such a high place in my heart that I still couldn't let go of it. I thought I was being wise, but I was just really holding on to it for security. And we want to have a witness of being sharers. And one thing that this might look like is that in whatever station of life we're in, uh, that it would make sense that your standard of living would be noticeably lower than your peers at the same station of life. So in a company, everyone kind of at your level who's making the same, is your standard of living noticeably lower? Not necessarily extravagantly lower, but noticeably lower enough that there should be a thought about it. Why don't you drive this nice of a car? Why is your car a little bit less nice? Why do you not go um, here for vacations, but you only go here? Something seems like you're not quite living as large as you could. And that should lead to a questioning. Because we want our giving and generosity to be to a level where we actually feel it. Where it's not just uh, that cherry on top that... When you get your ice cream sundae, you just like throw away that cherry because it's not adding or detracting. But it's actually enough that you feel it. And now there is that difficulty of that slippery slope of a poverty theology where you could always give more, right, until you're living in a shoebox. But just finding that thought, where, how much do I give until I feel like I might have to give something up, right? That idea of even having to sacrifice anything to be generous, that's actually pretty foreign to us. And so I'd encourage you, even as you're thinking through, you know, what you give to the church, what do you give outside the church and to make it a determined percentage of your income? Uh, This isn't God's word. This is just a recommendation. But to determine what percentage on top of giving to uh, my local church, 
how much would that be before I feel like I wouldn't want to give that much, right? If I gave this much a month, we really wouldn't care. This much wouldn't really notice. But here, ooh, maybe. Maybe, that, maybe that'll be a little step of faith. Maybe that'll be slightly challenging. And I think this, especially in our circles, is a really big way that we can improve our witness is by really focusing on the sort of generosity that Scripture calls us to, being desirous to be sharers. Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? There's a lot of rotten speech in this world, a lot of corrupting speech, and we want to be known as people that don't sink to the level of discourse of those around us. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, and let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Again, the sixth commandment here, the kindness that we're showing to others, the way we are um, not clamorous, not slanderous, right? We've talked before looking at James that we live in an outrage culture. And to resist that temptation to always be firing off about every issue and um, throwing out those firebrands on Facebook or wherever, um, we want to pursue a different way, even if we think specifically of our cultural and political engagement. Right? Remember Titus chapter 3, where Paul tells Titus to remind them to be submissive to rulers. Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Christians should be known as those who show perfect courtesy towards all people. And that's unpopular today. It's, the thought is that that's the old way and that's not going to work. The stakes are too high. The war is too rampaging. We need to use the other's tactics and we need to be aggressive. We need to be powerful. We need to make it known, our aggression. But Scripture's ways are God's ways. Similarly, 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We want to be known as honoring and honorable people. That doesn't mean we don't pursue what is right. That doesn't mean we don't stand up against injustice. But what's our character and witness in it? In our action, what is our manner speaking to the world? The witness of holiness. Really, keeping God's law. And it's not a burden, it's a joy. And it is a good way to live, to follow God's ways. And it leads to human flourishing. Now, secondly, the witness of holiness, let's consider now the witness of helpfulness. Some nice uh, little H alliteration there for you. The witness of holiness and the witness of helpfulness. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. It's interesting, the light shining being spoken of here is actually referred to as our good works. Our good works shine like a light in this world, and that's what Jesus wants others to see. And we're not given details of what they are, but a general principle. So let's consider continuing Galatians 6, 9 to 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here, the call is very simple, to do good to all. What are good works but works that do good to others? And that's what we want to be about, seeking the good of society. And in our desire, as we've been talking with the previous weeks, to share the gospel, we don't want to forget that um, there is more good we can do than only doing good to people's souls. God cares about bodies as well as souls. God puts us in community, gives us a call to uh, cultivate this earth, to do good to others. And even if it never leads to someone's uh, salvation, God delights when we do good to others. Remember, we're told our Heavenly Father is merciful even to those who hate him. So we should be merciful too. It's no loss. It glorifies God to do good in whatever that good is to other people. And that's a really simple rubric to use. Am I pursuing doing good to others in my home, in my work, at church, in my community, at school, whatever the case may be? And I want to consider a few different spheres where we could do this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9. And following, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he's talking here about vocation, about our ordinary work, and he says that part of working, kind of like we saw in Ephesians, is to move from dependence to independence. And it says you want to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this is a good witness to try to move to that place of independence in our livings. And now we know that for various in various situations and issues, we have seasons of dependence. We all start off very dependent as children. Most of us will end our lives extremely dependent. And along the way, there can be hardships, there can be disasters, unexpected things that happen that can lead us to a place where we need to be dependent for a season. But the question is whether that is the way, place we want to stay or whether we are um, seeking to try to move to that place of independence. Um, to purposefully remain dependent, to try to live off other people or to live off the government um, as an intentional, desired manner of life is not a Christian witness that we want to have. But we want to be, in a sense, he says here, minding our own business, working with our hands, doing what we can to take care of ourselves and our families. But it's interesting that he connects us to the idea of love. He said, you've been taught by God to love one another, and we urge you to do this more and more, living quietly, minding your own affairs, working with your hands. 
part of even this brother love is expressed in the vocation that these Christians have, right? And you can imagine even more than today, in a very small community, right, far less population than us, uh, a fairly agrarian community, still a fairly trade-oriented community, though there was Roman money, how much more did people need to depend on each other um, in sort of that bartering mentality of, Um, I can do this service for you. You can provide this food for me. Um, I can help your family with that. I can build this. You grow this. And um, how much more would you see more clearly the services we would render to one another in that sort of community? And we want to think about our vocations and jobs still in a similar way. Uh, Your occupation is the primary way you love your neighbor in this world. It's where the majority of your time is going, and therefore it's really important to be able to understand and connect your work to love of neighbor. Now maybe it's loving people in very mild ways, helping them with simple tasks or providing very simple goods, but everything is connected to some sort of service of other people's. Businesses only exist because they're meeting some sort of need that others feel they have. And when we're thinking career and vocation, we, we don't want to get trapped in that mindset that sort of a small-minded, um, all I would desire is just have anything that can just get, get, get my family by and pay the bills. That's good, but we want to have a higher aspiration to say, how much good can I do in this world? Based on the intellect, the experiences, the opportunities God's given me, could I potentially do more? Could I move into something else? Where can I be of best service? And even if we can't attain that and find that sort of thing that fits perfectly, how can we be seeking that even our mindset in what we're doing is I'm here to love people. I'm here to do good. I'm not just here to get a paycheck. The paycheck is a reward for my service of others. And generally, the more focused you are on serving the people, uh, your business or company is um, seeking to help, generally, the better you do and the more rewarded you'll be, the more you'll have to share. But it starts with having that mindset of this is a witness of love. This is a witness of goodness. And even if you're getting paid for something, it doesn't turn it into not a good work anymore. It doesn't turn it into an unloving act because you're being compensated. But let's keep that mindset in all we're doing. I'm serving my neighbors right now. I'm showing love in how I serve. 1 Timothy 5, 7-8 says, Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here we have, from thinking about vocation and the witness of our work, uh, that we are providing for our families in it. Now the context here is specifically talking about caring for aged parents, particularly aged widows. It says, why would you make your widowed mother be dependent on the church to care for her when you could care for her. And it's saying here, if you're not providing for your widowed mother, you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. It's saying that is a, such a bad witness you're sending that it's almost like you're not a Christian by that message that's being given, that you're unwilling to provide for your parents. And if we extrapolate from that, definitely that moves into providing for our children and families as we can. And we want to have a witness that we're providing for the needs in our households to the best of our abilities. But remembering that that's more than just providing for financial needs, right? 
Um, you know, haven't we all known um, or even had dads that thought their only job was just to provide the income? And other than that, responsibilities cease. But no, we're, we're providing for um, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, the psychological needs of our families. And we want to witness that um, our families are well provided for. You remember when the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon, and she was astonished by how well his servants were cared for, the way they were dressed, the way they ate. And she saw the wisdom of God and how he cared for his household. Uh, I was reminded of an example when I was thinking of that, of um, some family friends of ours named the Pothecaries. Um, Brian Pothecary, he came from an unbelieving home and was converted as a teenager, got married, and really tried from the ground up to learn how to have a Christian family. Um, his parents being unbelievers for most of his life, and his parents just continually noticed the difference between his family life and his brother's lives. Multiple divorces, um, issue after issue, and they just, over the years, they just could not deny that something was different about the way this family was living, and the decisions they were making, and the way their children were behaving. And eventually they then started coming to church with them. They started engaging the community of faith and uh, came to know the Lord and to participate in the life of the church. But it started off with, the, with really the witness of a godly family. And now we know that not, um, we don't have some guarantee that our kids will follow the way we teach. Our families may not always witness the way we would hope and have intended. But um, often this can be the case. The witness of a godly family before an unbelieving world. Thinking then also of qualifications of elders, in 1 Timothy 3.7, it's said that an elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into a disgrace or snare of the devil. Again, that above reproach in his um, business life, in his work life, that the outsiders do think well of him. And that's what we should want, right? Again, even if they speak against you as evildoers, they can't deny your good deeds. I remember at a previous, 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 previous church, um, an elder saying, um, almost in a sense boasting, saying, oh yeah, when I tell people at work I'm an elder, they're shocked. And I thought this was like funny, a funny anecdote, but I thought, what is it about you that seems so shocking that people would think you have some role in your church? Um, it seemed like his life just witnessed in a way that was utterly surprising that he would be a man who loves the Lord and wants to serve the local church. I don't think that's the witness we want to have. But that thought of, oh, of course, it makes sense. Of course you're a church person. I can tell uh, by your life. Well thought of by outsiders. Now, lastly here, uh, we are primarily loving our neighbors in how we are serving in our vocations, how we're serving our children. And remember that serving children in the home is just as much of a good work, a nurturing act, as, you know, Serving outside the home, right? People often, uh, they, they'll joke that, you know, if you're running a daycare or being a teacher, uh, that's a career. But then if you're doing it uh, within your own house, it's not anymore. Uh, it's just as much of a calling and a witness of doing good, of providing well for your family. But thinking beyond that then, uh, to this idea of mercy, works of mercy that sort of go above and beyond our normal actions. And we think of that parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, where really this outsider and enemy, this Samaritan who was, um, they were apostate. They had syncretized and um, damaged religion in how they had gone with the other nations and mixed their worship. Uh, the, the beaten up, bruised, 
robbed Samaritan, and how you know the Levites and the priests, they just pass him by, go to the other side of the road, kind of turn a blind eye. Perhaps they're busy. Uh, perhaps they think someone else will take care of him. Um, but then uh, the Samaritan comes by and takes care of this person, pays for his upkeep, uh, takes him to the inn, puts him on his own donkey, and provides for him. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. And one of the issues here is they're trying to say, some people aren't my neighbors. There's not, I don't have an obligation to care for all types of people, only the good types, only the properly religious and churchly types. And Jesus says, no. The obligation comes wherever it may cross our path. And if you remember Galatians 6, it said, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. And so we want to, in a sense, unburden ourselves to say, not every problem in the world is ours to care about. Not every issue can we be involved with. Not every charity can we give to. But there's something about proximity and opportunity. So you can think of circles of obligation that you have a primary obligation to those closest to you, to provide for your family then maybe extended family, friends, church family, community, world. And the closer you are in that, the more those needs obligate you to respond. But in a second way, opportunity obligates us to respond. Um, the priest and Levite, if they, had walked, if they had not walked down that road, they wouldn't have been condemned for not helping this robbed man. But because he came across their path, they had an opportunity, and they did not respond to that opportunity. So we have to be walking with our eyes open, thinking, where are the opportunities, especially in my day-to-day life? Who's in my path? Who has needs? Who can I show God's love and mercy to? We don't want to hide our eyes and look um, the other way. And when we think about the needs in our communities, we want to get beyond just complaining about how other people are not helping them, about how, well, that program doesn't really work for this reason or, or that that government grant, you know, that's a terrible idea. Uh, well, the question is, what are we doing? How are we helping? Uh, we can critique all day, but how can we be engaged in um, ways of showing mercy? And although we're not all called to do this um, with a significant amount of time or vocationally, we want to have it on our minds and hearts to say, is there an opportunity in my life to be involved with showing mercy? And this is just as healthy for us as it can be helpful to others. Whether it's finding, you know, um, once a quarter, volunteering an evening um, at a local nonprofit, uh, being involved with a, with a board or uh, being involved with some sort of weekly service or whatever it can be. Uh, there's opportunities all around us if we're willing to look and be involved. And um, having some sort of regular outlet to really um, show mercy is really healthy for our spiritual lives, um, even as it does good to the world. And so... To sum up, our, when we're thinking of our witness to this world, what is building this case for Christianity apart from our words, such that when we think of last week, we're having these engaging back-and-forth dialogues, is there already an open-mindedness to hear from us because the witness of our life has, in a sense, primed the pump and been paving the way such that um, there shouldn't be this thought of, why would I ever listen to you? I would want my life to look nothing like yours. I see nothing attractive or winsome or beautiful about the way you live and behave. But is there that um, level playing field to say, 
yeah, there's something about you. There's something that even if it seems odd, I'm curious. Is our witness producing that curiosity that leads to gospel conversations? We have the witness of our holiness, what we refrain from, the witness of our helpfulness, the things we engage in. And when you put it all together, there should be a witness of our happiness. Christians should be cheerful people. Yes, we live in a world of sin and misery, but Christ is victorious. We have the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we want to experience Psalm 128.1. How happy is the man who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. It speaks of the happiness of the household when we are walking in God's ways. And so even in the sorrows, there's a reservoir of joy that we are living the best way. We're living the way God has called us to live as his people in his kingdom. And when we live according to God's ways, that does lead uh, to the greatest flourishing we experience. So the witness of our holiness, our happiness, and our helpfulness as we consider how we engage this world. Um, any, any comments or questions uh, t- to add before we wrap up? Yeah, Chuck's asking there, um, in that list in Ephesians 4, he adds in, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit, like it's this other action. And I agree, I wish I knew exactly if there was something uh, Paul was referring to. Uh, yes, all our uh, disobedience does grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I don't know if we know exactly what that do not grieve the Holy Spirit is particularly referring to, if there's some unique act. Uh, we, think, we can think of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 about quenching. We're told do not quench the Spirit. And I don't know, perhaps it might be referring to um, a godless state of mind, perhaps a, uh, um, just a, a thoughtlessness towards the things of God, uh, or maybe some particular act in that time, maybe um, sacrificing to false gods or being engaged in pagan worship. Maybe there's a particular spiritual act. But sorry, I don't have any particular insight on that. Wish I did. <laughs> no, I like getting put on the spot. Don't worry about it. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, so Megan's asking, when Thessalonians is talking about being dependent on no one, how does that square with when we look at the early church, and they were so interdependent, right? Paul's always saying, can this church give money to this church? And so I think it's um, saying that aspirationally, to be able to get to that state of independence is healthy, to be able to be not a receiver but a giver. But in a lot of those circumstances, right, there's a, there's a famine in Jerusalem. And so because of this drastic... Um, natural item, they are moved into a state of dependence, which is amazing that the other churches then have enough 
that they can give to actually support them, right? So 2 Corinthians 8, he says, your abundance supplies their lack in their present need, and perhaps at some time their abundance will supply your lack. So I think the beauty of aspiring to have more than just the basics means that we can help provide for people that are moved into more desperate situations. And so it's actually that generosity that fits with that independence so perfectly to, cre- to create that, that mutual interconnectedness that I think God calls us to. But yeah, that, that, that's a great point. Um, time's diminished, so uh, let, let's pray as we uh, go into worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, cover all our sins and that even though we never would witness in our lives for Christ as much as and well as we would wish, that Jesus' blood covers us. We're beloved and accepted children. And Lord, we thank you that and pray that we will rely on Christ's grace every day to live this way you've called us to, to depend more and more on the Spirit as we see our own weakness, that we would be a prayerful and God-dependent people who are just calling upon you to change us and renew us and help us to be holy, to be helpful, and to know that blessedness that results. Lord, would your worship this morning equip us with everything good to do your will, that you would strengthen our faith, increase our hope, and compel our love, all for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.